to Philly People Now Deceased, a Philadelphia history podcast. Each time we meet, we talk about interesting Philadelphians who have passed away, which makes this a history podcast. We kind of get our start from a guy named Henry Simpson, who wrote a book called The Lives of Eminent Philadelphians Now Deceased, way back in 1859, which curiously left out anyone who wasn't white and male. So now we're redoing it with like everybody. Today on episode three, we draw an arc of good works through some pretty hard times. Join us as we discuss sex workers, poverty, riots, design schools, Sarah Peter and Anna Russell Jones. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Hi, Michiko. <laughs> Welcome back. Episode three. I know. It's three really episodes, three, three locations. <laughs> what was the first one? It was in my office. Mm-hmm. Second one. In the basement. And the third one. In Ziggy's room. Ziggy's room. This is the room of a seven-year-old boy. West There's Philly. a psychedelic giraffe and a Hello Kitty doll and all kinds of other randomness and books. And and the twin bed that my kids used to have when they were kids. So it makes me very nostalgic and happy to be in here. And our boom mic is even attached to the ladder on of the... that antique bed. <laughs> it's like... We got it going on in here. How far we've come. By the way, like, there's no shame in filming in a basement. That's how the Fugees started. They really? It, they called it the Booga Basement. Oh, nice. That's where they filmed, that's where they shot the score, in a basement. Which one is the score? That's the original one. Oh. How many mics do we rip on oh, a daily? Okay. So, la, la, la. I didn't know. It's the way that we rock when we're doing up. That whole album. In a basement. In a basement. Nice. They like got egg crate stuff and put it on the walls and yeah. But look, that's the way to start. Garage <laughs> or basement. That's how you, you know, why pay somebody for a space when you can just make the money that way? Mm-hmm. I, we're going to, we've got so much to talk about today. This episode might get turned into two episodes. So um, I'm going to start with a story. We're going to be talking a lot about women today. Okay. All right. You like women, right? I'm familiar. <laughs> I've heard of them. You know a few? I've known. I've, I have. No, I know a few and have known a few. <laughs> <laughs> all your all your exes get on and start like <laughs> commenting. It's all right. all right. All my exes are in Texas. It's yeah. <laughs> There's a comment. We'll show Isn't that a song that's like Hank Williams or something? Anyway. Okay. This is from an article called "Disorderly City, Disorderly Women." Oh, Sounds like women. two good things. Too disorderly. In the 1840s, Rachel Brooks became a prostitute after her marriage failed. Brooks married a yeah, we're going there. Brooks married a man from Maryland at 20, mm-hmm. bore him four children, all of whom died, and contracted syphilis from him. In disgrace and despair, she returned to her native Philadelphia and lived as a prostitute until at 27, she was too diseased to continue. Another woman, Christiana Phillips, became a prostitute when her husband deserted her. Sophia Smith, an Irish immigrant, was married, widowed, and seduced while a domestic servant before she was 20 years old. She then lived as a prostitute for six years until she landed in prison as a vagrant. So Philly was just not a real easy place for women in the 1830s and the 1840s. Mm-hmm. And that's from Marsha Carlyle, who writes uh, this awesome article about, like she said, disorderly women, like this whole idea that 
these women were, you know, disorderly. Like they, they, the word public was a bad word. So you didn't want to be a public woman. That meant that you were out in public. Mm -hmm. You were, you know, striding through the streets. You were in the park. And so you, you did, that was not good to be called public. Remember Downton Abbey? Yeah. So-and-so works in a public house. Thank (gasps) you. Right. Clutching, literally clutching pearls because someone of worked shame. in a public house. Now That's everybody right. goes to the pub because it's like the cool like, neighborhood Well, it was the rich out. who wound up, remember it was during the Russian Revolution, all the Russian aristocrats wound up in a public almshouse in London. And then Edith went to the public house to go help them out. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the whole notion of this word public. It's not, it was not a bad thing. I mean, not a good thing. But um, so let's talk about like 1830, 1840. So I bought like the population chart for you so you can understand just like mm-hmm. how much Philadelphia grew. So last we talked about Philadelphia. We were in 1793. There were about 50,000 people here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we get to... <clears throat> um, 1800. So this is in Philadelphia proper. So we'll mm-hmm. just call that 50,000. Okay. Okay. All right. 1810, 53,000. 1820, 63,000. This is so 30%, 40%, 20% growth. Every decade. Yeah. This is pretty big growth. 1830, 80,000. Mm-hmm. 1840, 93. 1850, 121. 1860, 565,000 people. And so between 1850 and 1860, you have an over 300% increase in, in the population. population. <laughs> Every other decade has been between like 40 and 20%. And then you have this jump in one decade. 300%. I mean, right. So this is when the Irish famine was happening. So, right. So we know that a lot of the Irish were coming through. And in, in this, okay, so what was happening in England is you had the textile revolution happening. So a lot of people who are, did handheld textiles or mm-hmm. had manual skills like, oh, spinsters, we were talking about the other day. Mm-hmm. They really were the spinning women. Mm-hmm. That's what they were. They weren't old women. They, were, they weren't spinsters as we call them today. They're actually women who spin wool. Huh. Yeah. And so anyway, these folks were in, um, and so the, U, the UK is changing. They're mechanizing a lot of the textile industry. And so a lot of people from England and Ireland are coming to Philadelphia because they hear it's a great place to be. Right. So that's what accounts for a lot of this growth. And then you have the Irish, this I'm pointing to the paper showing from 1800 to about 1840. And then this massive population growth of 365% between 1850 and 1860. A lot of that's attributed to the the famine in Ireland. And that must have caused a lot of social strife in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. (laughs) We're going to talk about that. So we have this population rise. Okay, and then the jobs. Okay, so then people come thinking what? I'm coming to America. It'll be a job. I'll step right off the boat, right into a job. It's going to be so great. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard they have gold in the streets there. It's going to be awesome, I think it's the best job. Have you guys heard about America? It's so, it's amazing. I'm going to open a It's amazing. We're going to get on a boat. We're going to have a little cruise. We're going to go over there. It's going to be beautiful. Manna from heaven. That's what I've heard about Philadelphia. No famine. Reality? Starting in even late 1700, um, if the Delaware froze in the winter, all the people who did got jobs off of ships, basically out of luck. And so almost from like 1790, there was this poor population 
um, of people who are right on the edge. So you could, for example, have a great job, be able to afford your house, but then it was completely seasonal. Things would go south, like the Delaware would freeze, and then the ships would stop coming, and now you had no income. And all these longshoremen were out of work, the sailors who thought they were going out are out of work, and the people who are waiting for supplies from Europe, because we weren't making a lot of stuff in America then, were, couldn't run their business, because everything stopped. No credit, right? There's right. no credit happening at this time, but you were just out of luck. You didn't have wood. You couldn't afford to eat. And so at that time, a lot of sort of Philadelphia's elite, of course, hadn't quite figured itself out yet as a municipality. Mm -hmm. So there was like, oh, we should help the poor. And there's this long arc of of the beginnings of an almshouse, which was um, the almshouse was on Locust between uh, 11th and 10th. Okay. And... It, the idea of the almshouse was that it was almost like a prison. So this idea was, we're going to reform you poor people. You are... Um, was it on the north side or south side of Locust? Uh, it was like um, between Locust and um, Spruce. So south side of Locust. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, that's uh, Thomas Jefferson University now. Oh, is, oh, you're right. That yeah, is yeah. Jefferson. Mm -hmm. So all that, that's been torn down. It was but... probably a slum that got cleared. And got given to a university. That was like a really common thing that happened. Yeah, maybe that's that's what happened to that area. Um, but they had a hard time trying to get this whole, there's a whole like arc about why it was hard to get Philadelphia elites to kind of get on board and go, mm -hmm. we really need to help people. I mean, there was some early, in some early, like, early, like 1730, there was this idea that we needed to identify the poor and so they would have them walk around with a big P on. Oh, that's nice. Like Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you're poor. So that everyone could help you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you'd be, like, feeling welcome in Philadelphia. Oh, here's you, your P. <laughs> could you imagine if, like, today the, like, the access card was, like, sewn into your coat and you had to, like, scan that when you got groceries and oh. it was just, like, your, it says access all the time. I mean, it's still is not great yeah because i've had it and it's a very very obvious poor people's credit card yeah whereas in other states it looks like a credit card it's very much in disguise they have multiple designs you can choose from so it's like when you check out at the store unless someone has been on benefits they don't recognize that that's not a credit card whereas in pennsylvania it's almost like designed to shame you into like getting a job or whatever Sorry, mouth yeah. on the floor. I, yeah. mean, I didn't know. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So that made me wonder, like, why did Philadelphia have this different response to poverty and a different way of reacting than like Boston, right, or New York? Part of it could be that there's a there's a book out called Quaker Philadelphia and uh, Puritan Boston, and the idea, the Puritan idea, was that we, um, as a community, take care of our community, whereas in mm. Quaker sense is we're in um we Quakers take care of uh we're supposed to live a, like sort of a quiet life independent uh of other people but we do get together in our meeting and um and there's some you know things that we have to do in that meeting mm -hmm. but it's not this overall sense that almost everybody in the city is if if you're not part of that meeting then you're free to live your life the way you want. Sort of like, fine, that's cool. 
um, in Puritan Boston, they're like, oh, you come here, you do things the way we do things. And, and that goes for everybody. This is what we do here. And that turned into, ironically, more support for more people in Boston than in Philadelphia. Hmm. Interesting. Because I would have always thought the Quaker is like the more evolved version of being a Puritan. But you're, you're seeming to say that it was better to be poor if you were in a Puritan community than in the Quaker community. I'm just going to read a little bit from the book. Um, broadly speaking, hierarchy, authority, and leadership are necessary characteristics of all civilized communities. However, a normative culture that stresses, that stresses the desirability of hierarchy, class, and authority will instill in its members a far stronger desire and capacity to take the lead in both community building and community reform than a normative culture that emphasizes equality and brotherly love. Hmm. Explicitly rejecting the need for hierarchy, class, and authority. As a friend who lived in both Boston and Philadelphia said to me recently, the people in Boston all want to be chiefs, while in Philly they are all content to be Indians. Huh. In summary, to understand the essence of the differences between classic ages of Boston and Philly, one must, mo must go back to the contrasting ideals of the church and the sect. The ideal of the church, and especially of the Calvinists in Geneva and the Puritans in Massachusetts, was one of established authority over the whole community, with an intimate relation between the minister and the magistrate. The life tenure of the educated minister, the election sermon, and the church at the head of the village green symbolized Massachusetts com commun communalism. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Quite in contrast to the church ideal of the Puritans was a sectarian ideal of the Quakers, tolerant of, but not responsible for, the whole community. Indeed, the inconspicuous Quaker meeting house lacked the soaring steeple of the modern New England church, signifying watchfulness over the entire community's morals. No educated class of professional leaders was encouraged or even allowed in Pennsylvania. Only the so-called weighty friends, often the most affluent, embodied covert authority in the silent meeting of drably dressed men, women, and children. What mattered? The morals of, one neighbors, of one's neighbors as long as the disciplined life within the meeting went on from generation to generation. So in Philly, you had freedom and independence a little bit more to do your own thing, but you also didn't have support. Is that like the That's way kind to of sum what that the, up? Yeah. And I'm, I find that the book is a slightly elitist. Like, I feel like, you know, this whole, I'm not necessarily bought in that hierarchy and class and authority is like the answer for everything, where the, that seems to be where it's leaning. Mm -hmm. But I think the argument is interesting because Philadelphia, instead of having, say, a global municipal group that was like, we're in charge, had instead all these little societies that would come up. Right. So there's a society for free Africa. There's mm -hmm. a society of women to support women. There's the society for people who are struggling in prison and the almshouse. You know, like, for example, if you got in prison in Philadelphia, you had to pay, this is really dumb, but you had to pay for your own food. Right. And you were like stuck. If you went in for debt, forget it. You were never coming out. So, and then you didn't have, you didn't have blankets. And so there was a society that developed to go to the prisons and provide aid to the prisons. But how come there wasn't instead a big 
governmental movement to say, well, we're putting people in prison. Maybe we should feed and clothe them. <laughs> yeah. This is the responsibility of a government, not the responsibility of philanthropy. Yeah. Which is kind of still where we are today. People don't, they, people don't, I don't trust the government. Go like every other developed nation has a much more robust government role in daily life than the U.S. does, where it's like we have to have all these groups that, that advocate for sex workers, that advocate for incarcerated people, that advocate for people who've gotten out of jail, and that, that advocate for moms to be able to afford daycare, and, all these, and like for advocate for people to have health care, and all these things that governments in other countries just do. You know, like where I work, the Bicycle Coalition, does not exist in most European countries because that's a function of the government. And people like me work for government. They don't work for a nonprofit. Right. Whereas you guys have to continually advocate to get safe bike lanes. I'm like, duh. Like, seriously, there should be safe bike lanes. Right. Just put it in the budget. Do, like, take care of it. Right. And hire me. Like, I should work for the city. I right. shouldn't work for some outside advocacy organization because the city shouldn't need a push. Uh -huh. It should be pushing itself to be safer and more environmentally friendly and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So maybe the answer is Puritans need to run the United States. <laughs> yes. So in conclusion, in conclusion, Puritanism is the way I can say this as a Buddhist <laughs> and an atheist. Puritanism. What I'm trying to do is kind of set the idea of like what's happening in Philadelphia, kind of where the mindset is and what, what mm -hmm. this is like for people who, yeah, are, yeah. who are coming here. All these immigrants are coming in and guess what? Oh, yeah. You, sorry. Go find a job. Oh, yeah, no, well, can't pay that back? Okay, you're going into prison. Oh, well, yeah, sorry, I don't know who's going to feed you in here. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just really bad conditions. And then as, so England had this textile thing going on, and all of, they were trying to keep all of this machinery secret. This was basically like an industrial boom, sort of like, you know, it was the Industrial Revolution. So some of those secrets were stolen and came to Philly. And mm -hmm. Philly started to build this huge textile industry. Right, right. So in Kensington alone, by like 1850, there were like 400 mills. And at least, what, 60,000 people working in the textile industry. That was where people made money in Philadelphia between like 1830, 1840, 1850. Civil mm -hmm. War hits. Cotton is where... It all starts, right? Right. So in a way, we can think that the slave trade and the cotton that came from the slave trade fueled the growth of Philadelphia, even though Philadelphia was a quote-unquote free. Right, and it, it fueled that, but it fueled people to work in sweatshops and children were working and everything else on the foundation of materials that were made by slaves. It's, yeah. <laughs> It's just like yeah. the energy's not positive. Like it's not like oh, this feels great. So yeah, to to hit that, I want to just like here's something from the uh, Philadelphia Encyclopedia about these conditions. Employees worked twelve or fourteen hours a day, six days a week, doing monotonous tasks in unhealthy conditions for low pay. Sounds great. Something paid better than this, I would imagine. We're getting there. Strike, <laughs> strikes and other labor conditions. Strikes and other labor actions were common, as were aggressive. Sometimes violent responses by mill owners. So we already started to see labor, stri labor strife. Right, right. We had some people burning down the mills. Mm -hmm. We had some mills get burned down because they were getting mechanized. So people were like, I'm going to, I came here. Now I had this job. Now I'm going to lose this job because now this mill's getting mechanized. So they would burn the mill down. 
Right. Child labor was another major issue. Children made up a considerable percentage of the textile workforce were also subjected to terrible working conditions. There were also conflicts between factories. And Philadelphia's many independent handloom operators who viewed mechanization as a threat to their livelihood. In 1830s, a group of Kensington handloom weavers tried to burn down a manioc mill that had been installed, that had installed new labor-saving machinery. So, so we had growing labor issues. We had growing poor people. We had not a great response from the municipality. Um, what do you, what else do you think comes in, comes into play? Think of all where the people are coming from. They're coming from Ireland. So what's, what are people here thinking about the Irish? Well, that, that was what they, they called, they considered themselves natives. Yes. White people that were already here. Yes. And they looked at the newcomers who had arrived, you know, 30 years after them as some kind of foreign invasion. Which I think is fascinating. Really? You're the native, not the Native Americans? No, 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 no. Yeah, but not the Lenape. You're a native. You've only been here for 50 years. Yeah. Or sometimes 20 years. Like their parents were immigrants and they were already, but from, but from a different place. So therefore, and, and, and white people, white people didn't really exist that much as an idea. It was all about your clan. Uh-huh. You're from Wales. You're from Essex. You're from very specific places that so, were either, you know, on a, that were on a hierarchy. And Ireland was towards the very bottom of the hierarchy. And that stuff got imported over here. Oh, yeah. So that, that those, those emotions and those kind of... Um, things that were dividing people up also got imported right into Philadelphia. It wasn't like people got here and were like, I'm Philadelphian now. They were like, no, I'm still from Essex or wherever I'm from. So this, this is a little becoming a powder keg, Mm -hmm. right? So you've got people bringing over the tensions that they had from wherever they were from coming here and not getting great jobs, not getting great support, a a growing amount of people in, in poverty and dire situations um, and then this sense during the Andrew Jackson, like, presidency that violence was okay to mm. use as a way to advocate for things. Um, I did find this awesome paper by a woman named Ann Morgan. She wrote, she was a junior in history, and she won the Penn Sack Award from the History Society of Philadelphia okay. in 2018. She's got an amazing paper. Um but, you know, she, she does talk about this time, and she says, due to the stresses of numerous disruptive social changes, Jacksonian America was characterized by increased levels of mob violence. The previous area had been ca- characterized by corporatism, which had bound society with ties of deference and paternalism within a s- system of hierarchy, that by the early 19th century, the myth of the single interest society had disappeared. Mm. And had been replaced with a multiplicity of antagonistic interests based on race. Popular uprisings, not traditional electoral politics, allowed different groups to act out ethnic rivalries. Okay. So, we start to see this rise of these ethnic rivalries. Mm -hmm. And in Philadelphia, so let's go to 1844. Let's do that. We have a burgeoning Catholic population. 
all kinds of Catholic churches, mm-hmm. seminaries, convents are starting to rise up, particularly right. in these areas like Kensington, where there's a huge Irish immigrant population. And according to the Protestants of the time, they might as well have been in, they were in league with Satan. They so were... the Protestants were not happy. <laughs> they formed this group called the Nativists. Okay. And they, that started to turn into a political party. Mm. And things sort of got heated when um, uh, there, it came down to the Bible and teaching children in school. So okay. you have both sets of kids in the school. There's a Protestant Bible and a Catholic Bible. Right. So um, the Catholic, the Catholic, um, what's his name? I think his name was George Kenrick. He was maybe a bishop, um, but he wrote an article that sort of set things off. And the article was like, we have the right to teach our children with a Catholic Bible. Mm-hmm. And the nativists were like, no, you don't. So they marched into Kensington with guns. And they start um, essentially having a throwdown in the streets. And it gets really bad. And was this at a time before the state did education? Because we had separation of church and state, ostensibly, by this point. It's the founding principle of the country. The country's uh-huh. been founded. Now, the Bible, even with separation of church and state, the Bible is still heavily involved in education. And in public schools. In public schools. Okay. And remember, a lot of these kids couldn't even go to school, right? So they're working. They were working. They, they were, were in working. a factory. So you start to get the rise of what's called the Sunday school. And uh-huh. a lot of churches, and these were not Sunday schools. They were actually real schools. Interesting. So Sunday school now is like the alternative or making sure you still get a religious education after your secular education Monday through Friday. Yep. Whereas you're saying Sunday school was the only school for these kids. Right. So maybe was it even a little bit less religious then? It was like actually Well, it seemed to some... be started by religious organizations. So you'd have a Catholic Sunday school, right, you'd right. have a Jewish Sunday school, you'd have a, a Protestant Sunday school. But I mean the actual like content, if they're not getting any education. Oh, I'm sure it was week, like reading and more? writing too. Right, right, right. Uh, reading, writing, writing, arithmetic, and the Bible. But this is where you would get your education. Right, right. So, okay, so... We talked a little bit about, um, all right, so 1844. So we're having this stressed out kind of fight in the street between the nativists and the Catholics while somebody dies, an 18-year-old kid. And the nativists now make him their martyr. And they're bold. So they do things like they're like, do a funeral procession all through the city and march this funeral right through Kensington. Like, let me just rile these people up a little bit, right? The militia gets bought in. And now Philadelphia is on martial law, essentially. <laughs> you have to be off the streets by 8 o'clock. There's malicious patrolling. Um, and, and people are sort of freaked out by that. Like, how the heck did we get to the place where we have to have militia in the streets? Like, duh, this was going to happen. All right, so things are kind of calm. And then you hit July 4th, the day after July 4th. So the, Oh, I forgot to mention this freaking huge during that may period not only were there fighting and fighting in the streets but there were they burned down uh, a seminary and they burned down saint augustine's church 
and it was the sense from pogroms against Catholics. Thank you. And it was the sense from the Catholic community that there was a let it burn mentality, which we've heard before Mm -hmm. from the Philadelphia police. In -hmm. fact, the mayor was in front of St. Augustine's at that time, but somebody hit him with a brick and and he like fell out um, and he got hurt and left the scene. But the mayor's or, never there when bricks are flying anymore, is the point I'm making. Oh, I, yeah. They're for all, some reason, politicians he Politicians are so much, so like segregated from society today. Right. Now like you would march transit, in the police. They don't walk on the streets. They don't, they're just like in their office and they're in a limo and like get being driven around and that's it. Right. Back then, you could just walk up to Abraham Lincoln. You, you know? could. You knock on the door in the White House. Right, right. With a petition. Uh, I want to talk to you for a second. Uh, got a problem. It's like, I'm having dinner with Mary, but come on in. We were just thinking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was walking past and I thought I'd just talk. Yeah, hey, we got nothing to do. Come on yeah, in. let's talk about it. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, Abraham Lincoln voice. So, you got churches burning down, sense from the Catholic community that really, Philly did nothing and let it happen. So, mm-hmm. between May and July, now there's a sense that, okay, the government's not going to protect us. But we've got to arm ourselves. Uh-huh. And the nativists, it, that gets translated to, hey, they are uh, arming themselves in their churches. And so there was a church, and it's still there, Philip Neri Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, this, there was kind of rumors going around that there were arms that were being gathered in that church. Okay. And that was right in the heart of Southwark, which is a Protestant neighborhood so there was a catholic church in the heart in the of the Protestant South- neighborhood yes. and the rumor was that they were accumulating arms right so it turns into so a mob decides that they're going to attack the church and it's the nativist mob mm-hmm. this time the militia decides to support because they got really beat up for letting saint augustine's basically burned to the ground this time they're like okay we're gonna support so they actually um uh got holed up in the church with um, some catholics who were also there and protected the church okay the nativist mobs bought cannon the militia bought their cannon and there was cannon fire basically a war on queen street in front of philip neri church Alrighty. Cannons. Uh, cannons. So it'd be like today, people bring their own tanks. Um, essentially, here's a picture of it. So this is Philip Neri Church, okay. and this is a riot in Philadelphia. And, like, the country's shocked. Like, people are like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, Philadelphia is supposed to be, like, this cultural center, and things just got completely nuts. Yeah. Looks like it. And I see big smoke from looks like from cannon fire. Yeah, like 25 people died on the streets of Philadelphia, cannon fire on Queen Street. So, uh, this is all still setting the stage for sex work. Yeah, we're okay. Talk about how because really, you know what? Everybody talks about the native, tons of stuff written about the nativist riots. Mm-hmm. But this is what I'm trying to set the stage for here is for women, you can imagine there's no men, the men don't have jobs. A lot of men have gone west. You can't get married. So, and then, and then if you were like a Protestant woman, right? You didn't want to marry an Irish Catholic immigrant. You could not marry, you know, or, or you would have to convert. 
you know, or, you know, for example, you didn't want to marry across races. So uh, what's happening in the Protestant women community is that they're starting to have their women fall into poverty because there's no more men. There's so much violence. You know, nobody's really, uh, there's, there's no stability in the city. Okay. And so what happens is women then turn to sex working. So in 1800, Philadelphia had a population of 81,000. By 1840, right, Tony, during the years of growth, disease and disorder are a part of the life of the crowded city, yellow fever, blah, blah, blah. Up and down, I'm reading from Disorderly Woman again. Up and down the narrow streets, courts, and alleys of Philadelphia, there was disorder. Columns of Penny Press regularly carried accounts of in- incidents in such Columns of what? Of Penny Press, like press... Um, you know, like broadsides, you know, papers on the street. So, so like the really cheap newspapers? Cheap newspapers that okay. would get printed and they would carry all of these incidents that were happening in colorful locations as Gillis Alley, Nanny Goat Alley, Ramcat Alley, Nanny and in Goat. Nanny Goat, Baker Street, Bedford Street, Small Street, St. Mary Street. Um, one, neighbor's rep- one neighborhood's reputation for continual fighting and drunkenness earned its name Brick Bat Row. In one month... <laughs> Of 1836. <laughs> you ever played brick, brick bat ball? Brick oh, bat. it's a spirited game. Throw a brick, hit it with a bat. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> in, the month of, in one month of 1836, a variety of residents of Sassafras Alley appeared in the magistrate's court. Amanda Smith was found drunk with a gang of boys collected around her, taunting her. Her neighbor, Catherine Deal, had to be bought in for disorderly conduct on the streets. Catherine Dawes called the watchman to protect her from her husband, Thomas. All the while, poor old Lady McGuire, an insane widow, wandered the streets. Years ago, it was said her husband had mistreated her and she turned to drink. Now her face, once one of considerable beauty, was bloated. Without husband or property, she was homeless, vagrant in the city of brotherly love. Nobody was going to take care of her. Right. Except for potentially some of these. And so a lot of this, we, we, there's a lot of the society. So, you know, reaching out to women like that. A lot of these stories come from those societies you know is who's going to take care of this poor woman who you know she can't get a job she she can't do sex working she can't work in the mills and now she's just what do we do with her right so um the brothel started to open up okay and they had names like dandy hall dandy hall was like the biggest brothel and that was you know a hotel dance hall and a gambling hell that was at the corner of fourth and plum street mm-hmm Washington Square, actually right across from um, Pennsylvania Hospital, you know where they're like on between 8th and 9th on Spruce, mm-hmm. uh, right across from the hospital, that was a hotbed of brothels. That's a pretty fancy row house district. Today. Yep. Yep. There were brothels within Washington Square and between the homes of rich Philadelphians. Now this was legal? What was the, what yeah, was the status of this? Uh, it was legal. So I don't think there were, in fact, so the pro- prostitutes would advocate, they would, they would use the police or um, night watchmen to advocate for their own rights. Like this guy came and he stole from me. And so they would, there's actually court records of, you know, um, sex workers going to the court system to say, during what I was doing, this person took advantage of me and they would actually win a lot of times. So it's... So sex workers had more legal recourse then than they do now. Yeah. Right. But most of the brothels were run by women, not men. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like there was like this heinous pimp 
thing that was happening either. Right. right. Um, and and again, these are women who probably would not have been in sex working, but this was the only thing they could do. There's some funny stories, right? Like so, the Walnut Street Theater, the third tier of the theater was known as the sex workers tier. And, okay, right in the Walnut Street Theater. And they would get up in front on the orchestra and they would point to people and say, oh, hey, and like wave to people that they knew and invite them. Like, so basically they were like had the run of the place. And so it was also a chance as a like male on the prowl to go see and be seen and then also slink away. Slink away. Do up a to dirty the th- deed and then still catch the end of the show. You could walk right over to the brothels that were between 8th and 9th on Spruce. You could go right upstairs. Or you could just go upstairs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there was even a guide. It a guide? Like a guidebook? A guide to the stranger or pocket companion for the fancy, containing a list of the quote-unquote gay houses and ladies of pleasure in the City of Brotherly Love and Sisterly Affection, published in 1848. This 1848, is, so they had like the, uh, why am I not thinking it? They had like the Zagat Guide. Or this like was like the, the Zagat Guide. It was the, the travel... Michelin, the Michelin, uh, you know, review. You have to read it. It's totally available online. <laughs> and it's like, this house is full of beautiful women and high class status. And this house is totally lowly. And don't go there if you value so, your life. You worked at the, you, you're a docent at the Rosenbach. Have you seen this book in real life? No, I haven't seen it in real life. I'm sure that Historical Society of Philadelphia has it. Wow. It is, it's out there online. Guide to the brothels in Philadelphia. Don't the, go to this place. They'll hit you in the back of the head and rob you. Exactly. This one's a very classy <laughs> place. I mean, right. so to get to the point where it's funny. With a fancy on a budget, <laughs> I recommend Delphine's over on Broad. Right. <laughs> and it's funny because the intro of the book, almost as if some woman would read it and be like, oh, my husband's just trying to, you know, be good. It starts off with no man should ever go to any of these things. These are just horrible and they're full of horrible people. And I'm printing this book just to warn you not to go to these places, especially don't go to this one on 12th and 8th. <laughs> Where the women are beautiful and high class. I mean, it's like, really? Well, it could also be seen as like an early attempt at harm reduction. Like, we don't recommend this. If you're going to do it, though, stay safe and go to a place where people have less disease or whatever. Yeah, right. (laughs) There wasn't, there weren't condoms. But it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So. This place has running water. I really recommend it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like you can get cleaned up afterwards which yeah. is good yeah yeah so um right so this is just the state of things in philadelphia okay now we're gonna switch a little bit and you're like where's the person that we're talking about the three people right so, well there's probably two that we're gonna be talking about okay. um lots of calls from people to do something so our buddy Matthew Carey, remember him from last time? The one who wrote, like, oh, the black community wasn't doing anything. That guy. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, well, turns out he wrote another book about, like, just how horrible it was for women. And, like, wake up, Philadelphia, y'all gotta do something. And it was called Female Wages and Female Oppression, and it was addressed to the, la- addressed to the ladies of the United States. And it was just, like, even women who were, quote-unquote, virtuous mm-hmm. could not make it in this city. So they're starting to realize, okay, we got to do something here. So, so Matthew Carey writes this book, 
and all these societies start to form. So the first one is called the Magdalene Society. And it was kind of like a society of, of prosperous women who felt that they, again, this whole sense of the poor need to be reformed, right. like we've got to fix them kind of thing. So it was kind of judgy. Right, right. And we're gonna, we're, we have the answers. We're going to come and all they did need is education. Yeah. As opposed to like a just society. Right. Um, and we're just going to teach them. It wasn't even education. It was more like we're going to teach them needlepoint. And then they're going to transition from being a sex worker into doing this needlepoint. And what they did was they put the women into this home, the Magdalene house, mm -hmm. and they were called inmates. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it's an inn and they're mates. Yeah. I never thought of the word inmate that way. And they it's were... all going to be mates at the end. Sounds kind of nice when you take it away from like the modern understanding of an inmate. Well, this is this whole approach to the poor. It's like we're going we're gonna to put them in a place and we're going to monitor them and make sure that they do everything we tell them to do. This is how the almshouse worked. Um, and, and you're going to have hours. And it's like basically you're going to a convent. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have rights. You don't have freedom. You're not supposed to have that. You're fallen. And um, so... But at this time, you mentioned education. So at this time, there's also this kind of rise in this idea that women, one of the things we're going to have to do is help women. One of the things we're going to do is kind of put them into careers that will be good for them. A great career for women is teaching. There's a woman named Catherine Beecher. Her sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, mm -hmm. wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. She was kind of the leader of this movement to kind of get people to start thinking that we can have education for women. We can have um, careers that, that there's not just mill working. Right. There's, let's try and find something that works. So Catherine Be Beecher kind of started these ideas. So in 1844, same time as we have these nativist riots, a woman named Sarah Peters, Sarah Peters, mm -hmm. moves from Cincinnati to Philadelphia. Now, in Cincinnati, she had formed the first orphanage there, and she met Catherine Beecher there, and um, her husband was William Peters, the British consul to Philadelphia. So she moved to Philly in 1844, and she immediately moved into kind of like elite society. She went to St. Peter's, which is the same place where the Native mm -hmm. Americans are buried, Native American chiefs, and she rose up in elite woman society. She did not like the Magdalene's because she felt like they were too judgy and this is not the way we want to treat women. Mm -hmm. So she and a couple other of her friends founded a group called the Rosines in 1847. And the Rosines was a little bit more like, we want to help you not just, we want to teach you, we want to see if we can transition you, we don't want to put you in prison, we respect who you are as a person. So just like a, like a more... Uh, you know, empowerment type of organization. So she got this idea that women might be good at art. So her home was at 3rd and Spruce, 320 South 3rd, South 3rd Street. And she started an art school. Mm -hmm. She had about 20 women in her in her house and her thing about it was she was trying to do for this this cadre of women who were kind of quote unquote, good women who were transitioning into poverty. So they had to be kind of quote unquote, deserving women. 
You who mean would, good women who are like slipping into poverty. Slipping into poverty. Okay. So to try so we she wasn't necessarily with her art school, she wasn't necessarily trying to get the women who had already quote unquote fallen. Right. She was trying to provide for a limited group and specifically Protestant. Mm-hmm. Right? So again, there was like all this kind of Catholic Protestant thing going on. So she focused more on let let me get this group of Protestant women and see if art education would be something that could help them transition in, into something else, right? So bring them a certain amount of money, bring them some something that they could do. And she recognized that the textile industry wanted to get in competition with France and England. Right. And this was, the, this was part of her brilliance to, to have said, okay, I'm not going to just, you know, go do what Nina DeAngeli Walls calls like the PTA bake sale mentality here, you know, give us a dollar here, a dollar there, and we'll help all these impoverished women. Right. She was like, no, I'm going to the leaders of this city. We need design. You're a textile industry. You want to compete against France and England? You're going to need design. Women, she thought, were great at design. I have an art school. Hey, you guys, why don't you fund it? Okay. And? That was really a revolutionary idea for her at that time. For for just... And how was she received by these textile magnates? She reached out to the Franklin Institute for Money, all Mm -hmm. of which was kind of, they, they, you know, run by, money was coming from these textile magnets, and she was well received. And they started her school. The Philadelphia School of Design for Women. And she was also vouched for by her husband. Who was? The British consul, who you wanted to be friends with. Yes. Because he was he had access to power and money. Yep. And so you want to be nice to his wife. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also she was part of the Protestant elite. Right. So she was taken seriously. And also they were trying to help these Protestant women. So I don't, you know, it's still kind of a little bit of an elitist thing. Oh, yeah. um, but they did give her um, funding. Well, actually, they said, okay, they said, okay, we'll back you, but your funding has to come from um, different areas, and they put some, uh, like, from, from textile magnets and stuff. And, so, and, then, and then the textile magnet felt like, great, this sounds like something that could work for us. Mm-hmm. So they funded her. They put her in charge. She really wanted, the other thing she really wanted was women to run a women's institution. Because she felt okay. she did not want males running a women's institution. So they started. Why not? <laughs> I, what's, what's wrong with, hey, what's wrong with men? Men are great. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, like you, I like men. I mean, I have no problem with them. No, I, uh, I, I used to be one of these uh, folks who got, like, when people talked about hating men, um, I would get like defensive or whatever and then i realized one day that i hate men too so it's kind of okay i understand like i just it's just oh you always get a little defensive when someone hates your group from the outside yeah but then i remember oh right i also hate men oh like most of what i learned about being a man Uh is fucked up is wrong is like is terrible be a man every every in every context it's like the wrong thing man up no, this is painful. That's your body yeah. telling you not, not to do this. Uh-huh. Telling me that I should overcome that is telling me to ignore the signs from my body. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good relationship to have with my body. Mm-hmm. That's just like one example of mm-hmm. the way that be a man is a really toxic 
thing to teach someone. And, and this was still being taught to boys very commonly as late as the 1980s because that's how I was taught. Mm-hmm. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent. Huh. But yeah, I can, I, can, uh, I can understand her wanting to exclude men. Men were the one that got these women in, in trouble in the first place. They were not going to be the ones to help them get out of it. Maybe that was what some part of her thinking, too. And I think also that she wanted, um, you know, it's easier. Sometimes that men can come across as kind of holier than thou. And that, you know, it, in order to really open up uh, and people that you're educating, it really helps to see someone like you, like who is teaching you. And so I think, like, right. you know, you need right. to. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what she was thinking. But I think she wanted to own a little bit of the say in what happened in mm-hmm. the school. And so I think she was worried that, like, you know, we have all these rich men who are giving the money, um, but we still need to have some type of say in how the schools run. So they kind of acquiesced and said she could have um, on her board a group of lady managers. Gotcha. They called them lady managers on the board. So the board was exclusively women also? No, the board was uh, a bunch of kind of men who represented the textile industry and the elites of Philadelphia and the lady managers. I see. I see. So the school moved um, because it kept getting bigger and bigger. And they hired this awesome principal. Her name was Anna Hill. And this was still called Rosine's? No, no. This was called the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. So they gave it an official name, the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. And Anna Hill was great. Everybody was happy. School's running. There's some proof that the designs that these women are making, they're starting to get out, and it is starting to have a positive effect on the textile industry. So people are like, great, this thing people works. People are making money. People are making money. It's working, right? It was a good investment. Right, right. So then Anna Hill drowns. She was on the Hudson uh, on a tour boat of the Wait, Hudson. Who's Anna Hill? She was the principal that they hired that they loved. Okay. Everybody loved this woman. So from about 1850 to about 1852, Anna Hill was in charge of the school and doing a crack job. Like, everybody loved her. But like I said, then she goes on this tour on a boat in the Hudson. And the boat, I think the boat catches fire. It's like a steamboat or something. Mm -hmm. And it catches fire. And she dies, which is just terrible. Which was also common. Was boating, it? boating accidents and there was no there were no safety standards. There was no government involvement in in maritime safety, and oh, so I'm a former mariner, so oh. I know a little bit about that stuff. But yeah, it was it was relatively common to have boilers explode and the whole ship goes down in instant, oh. and everyone aboard dies on the Mississippi River, where you can swim to shore, but you're in your room and the whole boat just goes down like a rock. Oh. Uh, there, it's you know, there's like story after story of that kind of thing. So being on a boat was actually like you know, like flipping a coin in life a little bit, or like playing Russian roulette. Eventually, people are gonna die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was a popular way to get around before there were like a road network and a train network and all these right. So things. like even in in here in Philadelphia, there's like a bunch of ferries between Camden and Philly, right? Right. right. That's how and, you would get back and forth. And that's why Philly exists because it's at the narrows between two navigable rivers. And mm-hmm. That's why it's it's paralleled to another city like New York at the narrows of two navigable rivers where they meet a harbor. Right. It's like that was the transportation infrastructure of the time was a river because there wasn't actual physical infrastructure built by man until much later. And you just have to take your chances with the boilers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. So. <laughs> the cost of modern mobility hey, at the time was like, boilers exploding. Today it's, it's 40,000 people die a year in mm-hmm. car crashes. That's right. seen as the cost of mobility. Yeah. But. 
so so anyway, Aunt, poor Anna dies, mm-hmm. and this kicks off this massive fight because Sarah Peters, who started the school, puts in charge a twenty-five-year-old woman. So Anna Hill was not a twenty-five-year-old woman. I guess she was older. Everybody was like happy with her, right? But this twenty-five-year-old woman's name was Elizabeth Speakman. 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 And her running of the school was she African American? No, she okay. she was from she was also I think from Quaker elite. Okay. Um, but I feel like she she was criticized for not having a lot of discipline in the school, and um, I wonder like what is that about? Like, so maybe she was like, sure, if you want to do something that's not completely classical, let's see what it looks like. It's an art school. It's an art let's school. Let's experiment. Right. Let's. Let's see some different creativity happening. She's 25. She's got new ideas. And Sarah Peters loves her and is like, this is my girl. Because I'm sure that they were actually looking at a lot of like rote memorization of patterns and repetition of patterns and, and those kind of things with the, with the sort of professor and the very upright posture with the ruler reminding you how to hold your pencil and all these kinds of things. And, You're like psychic. Because... And I'm sure Elizabeth Spearman came in and was just like, hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, let's let's see what you got. just feel. Just, just what are you feeling right Connect now? Connect with the wall. Okay, you wanna you wanna write in your own blood? That's okay. Just cool. tr- you know. You know, I like what you're saying. That's an interesting. I, I hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that very powerful voice. You can see the raw emotion come out on the page. Yeah. So, the older guy <laughs> who you just mentioned, his name was Thomas Briarwood, and he was the older, more established, you know, teacher at the school. So they had male teachers. They did. Okay. They had some funny stories. Like they had like really kind of like this one angry French teacher that nobody liked. Like he was just yelling at everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all these kind of stories. But um, anyway, this led to a fight because Thomas Briarwood eventually writes a letter to the Franklin Institute and is like, I can't work under Elizabeth Speakman. <laughs> And this turned into a contention, contentious, contentious fight. So Nina DeAngeli was... This was a man who... Yes. Well, he's getting bossed around by a... A a 25-year-old woman. woman. Who's younger than him. Yes. That probably didn't really exist. He didn't like it that much. Well, it didn't... Like, I don't know that that dynamic really existed much in America. Well, see, that's why I think this is so innovative. So Sarah Peters is like, I'm running this as all women. I'm going to put a 25-year-old woman in charge. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is why... This turned into such a big fight. So, but Anna Peters was still like the executive director, sort of speak, yeah. of this nonprofit, and yep. then like a Speakman would have been like the program director kind yes. of a thing, yeah, nonprofit speak. Yeah, you had the board. Yes, but then one of her co-employees or one of the people under her that was like a program coordinator uh-huh. was like, "I can't work for her." Yes, got you. Okay. So, so then in return, Speakman then does this. She questions Briarwoods. This is the guys. Moral conduct. Mm-hmm. Mm. What's he doing with those women in the school? I see. I see. There are women who are looking to get reformed. <laughs> and then he's the one who's got like this power over them. They were right, right, right. So there could be a little bit of something, something going on. At least the accusations start flying. And then Briarwood is like, yeah, well, you're not running this school discipline and I'm going to quit. And then finally, Peters puts her foot down and says, I don't care if you quit. Speakman is staying. And then the Franklin Institute steps in. 
the, uh, the, the board. And the board was the, still dominated by men, right? Yes. There was some <clears throat> representation, but... And there was literally, like, a throwdown at the board where it got so bad, Speakman had to be... Elizabeth Speakman had to be represented by a lawyer. And it's like... And it comes down to, like, the, you know, a fight in front of the board. But not a fight, physical, but, like, everybody stating their case, almost like um, a court drama, mm-hmm. right? And Briarwood stating his case. And... The committee finally, the Frank, the Franklin Institute committee was like, okay. Uh, Sarah Peters was like, not backing down. They're like, okay, fine. Have your way. But then three weeks later, Sarah Peters split from the Franklin Institute. And the Philadelphia School of Design became independent. Oh, so she didn't leave the board. She took her organization with her. Yep. Got you. She took the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. And, um, you know, this is what Nina D'Angeli Walls said. Clearly, Sarah Peter had refused to compromise her stand on the public administration of the school, and the men of the Franklin Institute refused to accommodate themselves to her position. Their apparent suddenness with which the Institute managers washed their hands at the school's affairs implies that Sarah Peter's insistence on a female administrator seemed completely irrational and impractical. Well, that's how women were, right? Irrational and impractical in the eyes of men. I wonder how her husband felt about this. He died in the middle of all this. Dang. I know. So Sarah Peters is also like going through it, right? So she's also losing her... Support A lot of her power. Yep. Because she doesn't have this automatic influence of the British consular. Yes. Right. That's right. And now she's... She breaks off with the Franklin Institute. Now she breaks off with the Franklin Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, after her husband dies, so, so they break off. The school's still running. Elizabeth Speakman is in charge for a little while. But then it kind of gets bumpy. I think she leaves. And then some other like European people came in to run the school. And it was just kind of a little bit bumpy. But in the meantime, they have more and more women who are starting to come to the school. So... Sarah Peters leaves, and when she leaves, because her husband's died, she goes back to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Without her leadership and support, eventually the board becomes more wealthy businessmen, and they eventually phase out the lady managers. So okay. now, even though she had that big fight, and even the Elizabeth Speakman leaves, even though she has that big fight, she's now separated as an independent school of design for women. Um, now, because she's not there to support the men, slowly start to dominate the school again. They start to dominate the board, and guess who becomes principal later? That dude. That dude, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> alright. The one who was accused of maybe some overly f- friendly behavior towards he, the he students. He leads the school for quite a, like, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And then Elizabeth Crossdale becomes the principal in 1873. So a woman, another woman comes in. And then the school merges in 1932 with the Moore Institute of Art. I've heard of that one. The Philadelphia School of Design for Women is the Moore Institute. But they merged with Moore? They they merged with the Moore Institute of Art and they became a first class art and design school. Right. I wonder how many Moore students know that. Oh, yeah. It's on their website. Oh, I don't cool, know if cool. they know about this whole big fight. Right, right, right. So, so wait, why did um, 
Why did she leave? Peter's? She left. I think she was. I mean, I I'm in, inferring that it was a hard fight. Here she was, a woman who was in part of the elite. She had used her status to get the support from the school, she and spent then a lot of political capital. Thank you. And, and her, her husband, husband died. Dies. So what'd she do? She went back to Cincinnati. And she 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 did more philanthropic stuff there, mm-hmm. but she she started and I think she told uh I think she may have been like a consultant on how to build schools like this for women. I, I think see. she may have continued I doing see. that. But I think she was like I get the sense, I'm inferring that she was like, I'm done, Philadelphia. Y'all just like totally I I ain't got it no more. So I mean, her influence is felt not only, and, and the institution's still there today, right? right? So Moore is an important institution in this city. Who runs Moore today? I don't know. Now I'm curious. I know, now we'll find out. So now we're going to end this thing with this adorable little girl. And I wish you could see this picture, but this is Anna Russell Jones. Aww. Oh, I know. Oh, my she goodness. Cute. That's very cute. She's so adorable. She's like six in there. Yep. So Anna Russell Jones was um, the first black graduate of the more uh, the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. Okay. So she um, went to high school in Philly in 1920. To circle back for a second, Moore is currently run by Cecilia Fitzgibbon. Awesome. Hey, Cecilia. Cecilia. I hope she'll so, like our podcast. Being, being run by a woman today. Yep. There's another picture of her when she's older. Okay. So she graduated from William Penn in 1920, and she got um, the first scholarship. So, so the University of Pennsylvania, you're saying? Oh, William Penn High School. Oh, high school. Yep. Okay. And she decided she was good at art, and she just decided that she was going to just keep doing art. And so mm-hmm. she she talks about, like, I was getting beat up, not beat up, but like everybody's like, why are you going into art? Like you have to consider this is the 1920. She's African-American. People who've got PhDs who are African-American can't get jobs. And she's like, I'm going to go into art. Everybody wanted her to go into HOMAC. Right. Right, And she was like, no, I'm really good at art. I'm going to keep doing this. You can, hey, you can make money in, in being a servant in someone's home. Right. Like that was like the stable income. That's the stable income. And, and for her to say, I'm very good at this. I'm not going to take that path, even in high school. So the modern day equivalent would be like, no, I'm not working at the post office. Yeah. Like I'm not taking the the sure job. I'm, I'm going to, I am risk. I'm not worrying about a day job. I'm a creative and I'm good at what I do. Right. And so, and, and so that, that's what I really love about her is that she's just so like, I am who I am Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do this. And so she gets the first scholarship for any African-American high school student to college. In Philadelphia. And that scholarship was to um, the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. Uh-huh. And what, the, the school had its own scholarship fund? No, Philadelphia was starting to give scholarships. The city? The city. City government? Yeah. Okay, so like tax dollars went to give people scholarships. Yep, and she was the first, recip- first African-American recipient of one of those uh, scholarships. Today, you can maybe get a tiny little micro scholarship from a municipality. I don't know that there's a municipality that gives a full scholarship. She got a full ride. To wow. the She's really good. Now, I think some of the more student Philadelphia School Design for Women at that time, students were teaching in the high schools and were seeding the high schools with trying to find more talent. They were building a pipeline. They were building a pipeline. Right, right. And she was identified. And so 
there she was. There, she tells this interesting story about like people would come to visit and they see her and they'd be like, who is that? And then the tour guide would say, well, no, she's just a Filipina who's here or she's the Japanese student that we have. Like they would like explain her away because people couldn't in their mind comprehend that, you know, there was this African-American student at the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. This is in the 20s. Because there were more acceptable ways to be brown. You could be native. <laughs> you couldn't be uh, an African-American woman from Philadelphia. Right, right, right. Right. So they, because they couldn't comprehend that, they had to say she was Filipina. Or that she was descendant of some prince or something. Exactly. She's from Arabia. Just racism. So then she finished. She, she became the first African-American woman to receive a four-year scholarship to PS, PS, Philadelphia School of Design for Women. She's the first African-American to graduate. She majored in textile designs, and she became really good at doing carpets, carpet design and textile design. And after she graduated from um, uh, school, she, got, she worked for a while at a carpet firm, mm-hmm. and she did rugs and wallpapers, which uh, was, quote, a difficult and rare accomplishment for an African-American woman in the 30s. Um, Tell me you have an image of some of her designs. I don't because I posted one to our site. Remember I put this as a good carpet design? Mm -hmm. That was her design. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and the reason I don't is I've been trying to connect with AMP, which is where her connection is, where her collection is, to go see AMP, uh, African American Museum in Philadelphia. Gotcha. Uh, And it's just been hard to connect with uh, their curators to get get over there and see some of her work. So I found out about her when I went to a HSP event, a Historical Society of Philadelphia event, and the woman at the front desk said, oh, I think her name was Sandra. She's like, oh, we just curated this collection um, that, you know, uh, she, she was at Penn. They had done some of the collection kind of um, just kind of mm-hmm. rendering out what the collection was uh, as a favor to AMP. And that whole rendering of the, those whole collections are actually on Penn's website. I know that's a little confusing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so she's like, you really should look into this woman. And I, I actually got this whole story. I started with Anna Russell Jones. Then I started looking at the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. Then I started looking at Sarah Peters. Then I started looking at how screwed up it was for women. Mm-hmm. And, why, and then I started looking at the nativist riots. And then I started going back to how poor people were treated in Philadelphia. So I w- did the arc from Anna Russell Jones to how poor people were treated, to how horrible Philadelphia was for women. Because if Sarah Peters hadn't done any of this work, Anna Russell Jones would not have been able to be an mm-hmm. African-American artist in the 1930s. It's funny because you think that you're doing these small things and these organizations we belong to. Right. And a lot of times you feel beat up. You get burnt out. Mm-hmm. But you, and, and you may even leave it. But you really have moved things forward. So, and you just don't see the arc of that until maybe a hundred years later. Right. And so I, for me, it gives me a lot of hope because I don't think Sarah Peters could have envisioned that there's this brilliant artist, you know, whose life essentially was completely, she was able to live at her highest as an African-American woman in the thirties, in the forties, because of the work that Sarah Peters did, even though Sarah Peter may have left feeling, oh failed right so right. you it's like incremental changes mm-hmm. with a very long arc right right 
And it also is the connection between people, right? So Mark Twain connects the mentor, connects the Thurgood Marshalls, connects the Barack Obama. There are these connections that are happening throughout right. history that when you start to trace them back, you you find a very interesting story. Right, right. And Barack Obama may have happened on his own. I'm not trying to say like Mark Twain made Barack Obama happen. Yeah. But Thurgood Marshall was an inspiration to Barack Obama when he was in law school. Yeah. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. It's a fact that Thurgood Marshall's mentor, the person who saw him through his difficult times in law school, was someone who got his education from like it's like yeah. remarkable how that how that can happen. And how you, those you can't can you, roll forward. Yeah, and you can't say what it does to have even to be able to say, like say you're, you know, a woman and you see like, oh, there's a woman doing that. Well, wait, I can do that. How that even affects somebody who doesn't, who we don't even know. So who did Anna Russell Jones connect to that we don't know that is out there doing her own thing right now? Right. So, well, I just, let me just, she's just as important for a couple other firsts. So she was the first African-American woman from Philadelphia to join the army. When did she join the army? In the 40s. So 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 what happened? After her art. Her art career. So she tried the art, she did the art thing. She worked for a company for a while, and then she worked on her own for a while. So she started her own business, which mm-hmm. was kind of radical because her do- she felt she was good. Then the Depression hits. Right. Um, and then 1940 to 42 were hard years just financially. Right. And she's still single, by the way. Hasn't married. So she's getting into her 30s and her right. 40s. So, I mean, I'm just like, wow, she's just doing what she's going to do. She's essentially unmarriable at that point. No, she actually does get married. Then joins the army and becomes a sergeant. And she she talks about, so this is a video of her as an older woman. She passed mm-hmm. away, like, I think in the 80s, that, um, of her talking about, like, she goes into the army. And they're like, well, what do you do? And she's like, I do art. Again, what do you do? I do art. So they, <laughs> they didn't quite get it, but she did art for the army. So she designed maps. She designed educational posters. And some right, of her right. stuff, if you watch that video, and I'll post it to the website, it's, like, really awesome stuff. I would love to find, like, an original Anna Russell Jones. Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, in some art, mm-hmm. art uh, you know, antique store somewhere. But when she got married, she married William Albert Marsh Jones, who was the court crier for Judge A. Leon Higginbotham at 50. She got married at 50. She got married at 50. And wow. she continued to do graphic art and illustration until t- she retired. Um, and looks like she had a pretty happy life. All right. Well, we better, we better shut this thing now. Let's wrap it up. Because I got to go get the dogs. But go let's dogs. say goodbye to everybody. Goodbye, everybody, again. Thank and you yes, for listening. And uh, would appreciate your feedback. Um, and tell us what you think. Well, that is what feedback is. But mm-hmm. till next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. A very special thanks to Sarah Lou for introducing me to Anna Russell Jones. I incorrectly called her Sandra in the episode. Some other corrections. It's Historical Society of Pennsylvania, not Philadelphia. And it's Sarah Peter, no S, not Sarah Peters. Thanks.